Hi, this is Gary Meese, back again at long last with The Case Against. I've been thinking about, a lot about what to do with this podcast, and uh, there's some things I want to cover that weren't covered in the books, uh, Blood on Black, Where the Monsters Go, and The Case Against the West Memphis Three Killers. Uh, the la- and the latter book is a condensation of the first two books. But um, I realized that uh, a lot of this information that was at- is in the books is not on the internet anywhere, and I'm not on the- a podcast anywhere. It's on the internet. And uh, I decided to... to rather than reinvent the wheel or go back over and get into the more arcane details of the case, uh, and they are there, I would uh, start off by covering what's actually in the books, which may take me a good long time since uh, I think I had 65 chapters, and some of those chapters are 20 pages long, so I won't be getting through with the books anytime really soon, assuming I my intention is to do maybe an hour a week, and uh, it, it's going to be a while before I finish up. Uh, in the meantime, uh, I am, I, and I realize there's a lot to prepare a podcast, particularly with new original material, is a lot of work. Found that out very quickly, and uh, so uh, there's going to be some. Um, new things that they're going to come up in these podcasts, but it's also going to be basically going back over what's already there. Uh, if I hadn't said it already, I basically don't see any reason to reinvent the wheel. Uh, and you might say I took the lazy man's case with, with this case, uh, lazy man's uh, style with this case anyway, because I, I felt that the, the guilt had already, the guilty parties had already been identified and the case against them had been built, been built sufficiently in the case evidence, all of which is on um, available on callahan.mysite.com for those who are interested in doing their own research. And I fully encourage you to do that. Um, my books contain information that is not on that website. But most of the evidence against the West Memphis Three is is based on material there. Um, some of the things I'll be talking about are going to be things that are derived maybe from uh, things uh, items on the website, but not aren't specifically there. And, and some of these original things I'm talking about doing, which I'm not going to get into the details of here as yet. Uh, So I thought I would just start initially with uh, the forward to, uh, I think it's the forward, is it the forward or the preface, the prologue to uh, Blood on Black and and just go over what I had there. Before I I do that, I I wanted to say that uh, I just got through writing uh, a review this afternoon for a book that's coming out that's written by Terry Hobbs. not written by Terry Hobbs, it's written with the input of Terry Hobbs. Uh, Vicki Edwards, who is his cousin, uh, is, the, is the 
credited author and actual writer. Uh, but most of it's in Terry's own words. Been edited, nudged here and there, I'm sure. I wasn't I wasn't involved in the writing or editing process in any way. So uh, except for a very late read read of a uh, of a sample chapter just to see what I thought, how it sounded, and it sounded fine. It's a very it's a very good read. It's a very solid read. Uh, Mr. Uh, Terry Hobbs can make his own case uh, if any if one needs to be made. Um, there is no case against him in terms that I can see in terms of uh, uh, the West Memphis Three case, the killing of his stepson and two other boys. He's he wasn't involved in it in any way other than being one of the searchers. He was a parent, which is a big 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 thing, and he was involved. Help. He was involved very early on in the search for the three boys, pretty obviously for very good reasons. And uh, he actually had a very low profile up until about 2007 or so. But anyway, uh, I, I would encourage when that book comes out, I'll, I will, will publicize it here and elsewhere. I'll let you know where you can get a copy if you're interested. And if you're not, that's fine too. I don't expect it to change a lot of minds. Uh, and, you know, in some cases he might provide more ammunition for his critics, but because uh, it's a pretty honest account from from what I can see uh, of uh, his life and uh, what's going on. And uh, he admits some things he's done that he regrets, that sort of thing. It's not a total whitewash. It's certainly not a life story as told by Damien Eccles in which he totally glosses over uh, the many, many uh, problematic aspects in his own life that we know about. Anyway, um, with that said, uh, I'll say briefly that I see a, a turning point. I, I was interested at one very recently in uh, the phenomena of these crime documentaries and, and these crime podcasts as well, and that suddenly there become this real business model that had evolved, and it really comes back to the West Memphis Three, it comes back to Paradise Lost, where people had figured out a way to monetize uh, the so-called innocence of so-called convict of, of convicted killers, uh, making a murderer being a prime example. And without getting into details on the second season, which I found, I, I literally have fallen asleep trying to watch that several times. I think I've seen it all, but it's kind of hard to say because as soon as Kathleen Zellner comes on, the doze machine hits at my house. Uh, I really need to keep that, that around for when I can't go to sleep at night. It's better than a dose of melatonin because it is the most flat-ass boring stuff I've seen in I don't know when uh, and thoroughly unconvincing. But, you know, with Amanda Knox, with uh, Stephen Avery, with West Memphis Three, and a, a lot of lesser cases, and some, uh, 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 the staircase, which uh, Michael Peterson is guilty. 
if you really look at the case instead of looking at that documentary, uh, he's guilty. Uh, jinxed, he's obviously guilty. And even then, it's a, <laughs> it's a sympathetic portrait. And up until the very end, uh, the, uh, it's somewhat amb uh, amb ambiguous about whether he's actually a, you know, a real killer or not. Of course he is. It, you know, but if you, anyway, uh, I'm going to now read uh, the prologue from uh, Blood on Black. You can you can buy my books on uh, Amazon uh, if you have Kindle. They're the they're a lot more affordable. It it actually costs money to produce paper paper versions and so you know I'm not making a huge amount of money off the paper versions even though they're the two the two earlier books are, are large books and they're fairly expensive relatively expensive I'm not making a lot of money off that so uh, each individual book sale most of that has to goes into um, publishing cost uh, and my point with all of this, I mean, I, I'd like to sell more books and make more money with it, but the point of this is, is to get the truth out about the case. It's not really about making money. Frankly, there are easier, quicker ways to make money than writing a case about writing a book about the uh, guilt of the West Memphis Three. One thing, nobody wants to read it because <laughs> it's one of those things that, well, some people do want to read it, but it's it's one of those things that, People want to read about, unless it's a Ted Bundy or John Wayne Gacy or some really, really notorious, salacious serial killer with lots of gory details. And this, and the, this case has its share of gory details, but uh, they want to read a story about uh, somebody who was done wrong by the legal system, apparently. I, I just see a change coming where people are finally catching on that this is a gimmick that isn't doesn't isn't going to work forever not every case uh when somebody if, if everybody in prison who said yeah i'm here i'm here and i was wrongly convicted if everybody was let out the, the prisons would be empty pretty quickly uh, somebody's doing the crimes and frankly most of the people in prison need to be there and if they a lot of the guys who are wrongly convicted are wrongly convicted because the pat the crime that they are convicted of that what they were wrongly convicted of, it fits a pattern of crimes they were should have been rightly convicted of. In many cases, these wrongful convictions are based not on, oh, well, they didn't do it, but some legal, uh, niggling le le legal detail. In other words, I killed somebody, but I somebody didn't read the rights, or I, you know, the judge, the the prosecutor failed to disclose all the evidence they should have disclosed to the to the defense, which is, you know, I'm not arguing that that's that's uh, wrong to do that. I mean, I'm I would argue it's wrong for the prosecutor not to do that. I'm not arguing that it's wrong if the court say, well, you weren't rightfully convicted. But it doesn't mean they're truly innocent of the crime. It just means they were, they were not convicted as they should have been on the on the facts, the, all the facts available. That isn't the case in the West Memphis Three case. There's no evidence of prosecutorial misconduct. There's no 
evidence of uh, misconduct by the courts. There isn't was an allegation, which will now never be proved or disproved, that there was juror misconduct, and that that's disputable. Uh, and it was would it would have been disputed if it actually got to court, and who knows how how that would have gone in in a court in in a court system with uh, uh, the system of uh, you know competing interest actually making an argument in front of a, a court in front of a judge. It's quite possible the judge said, "I don't see any juror misconduct here." Yeah, it's possible. It's and I would say it's probably likely that they said, "Well, you know, there's just enough there that you know, okay, they get a new trial." Maybe that would have happened. I don't know for a fact. Uh, I do know that it wasn't proved in court. Uh, anyway, I'm I'm gonna I'm now I'm getting over uh, on uh, material that I can cover if I just go through what I what I have in the book. I'm going to read this, and I'm occasionally I'm going to break away and make some comments, but hopefully I'll just get through this, and that'll be the end of the podcast for this time. Uh, uh, enjoy. Uh, hopefully I've got my uh, technical problems I've had um, earlier podcasts sort of ironed out. I've got some better equipment. I've got my, hopefully my chronic, though not serious, but chronic cough is under control today, I think. Anyway, uh here we go. They did it. The West Memphis Three are guilty. They are guilty not just because they were convicted, though they were convicted. They are guilty not just because they pleaded guilty, though they did plead guilty. They are guilty despite what the documentaries, books, television shows, newspaper and magazine stories have said over and over and over again. Guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Damian Wayne Icky Eccles, and yes, that is the nickname he gave the West Memphis police, Icky. It's not something I made up. Also known as Michael Wayne Hutchison, uh, Charles Jason Baldwin, and Jesse Lloyd Miskelly Jr. killed three eight-year-olds, Christopher Mark Byers, James Michael Moore, and Steve Edward Branch on May 5, 1993, in a wooded area in West Memphis, Arkansas. The murders were thrill kills, according to Eccles himself, but they were much more than that. Police were struck by the ritualistic aspects. And I'm going to do a whole episode on that very soon. Anyway... Local dabblers in the occult immediately came under suspicion. Under questioning, Eccles, already acknowledged as a witch, wanted his knowledge of the occult, his theories of how the killings could have magical implications, and his insights into how the killer would think and feel. He demonstrated special knowledge about the case beyond the little publicly known. He gave out signals that he was a prime suspect. A series of witnesses further implicated him. A confession broke open the case. The widely accepted West Memphis Three storyline is that inept police and prosecutors with a howling mob of religious fanatics to placate somewhat arbitrarily 
picked out three innocent boys to blame for horrific murders because Damien and his best pal Jason wore black t-shirts, listened to heavy metal music, and had funny haircuts, and because the third boy, little Jesse, was practically retarded and thus easily manipulated. Almost every element in the standard storyline is a myth with little relation to reality. Take the long-haired teens and black t-shirt myth, for instance. Long-haired teens have been wearing rock concert t-shirts in Crittenden County for several decades at the time of the arrest. If rock and roll wasn't exactly born in West Memphis, the music arguably was conceived there at at KWEM, which from 1947 to 1955 featured such blues artists and artists who were very influential on rock and roll as B.B. King, Howlin' Wolf, Ike Turner, Junior Parker, Sonny Boy Williamson, James Cotton, Elmore James, and Arthur Big Boy Crudup, as well as live performances from Elvis Presley and Johnny Cash. Pitchfork welding fundamentalists did not burn down the studio playing the devil's music in 1953. By 1993, which is some 40 years later for those who are need help with the arithmetic, rock music and a certain rebellious spirit had become endemic to the rough-edged little town across the river from Memphis, Tennessee. The locals dug the beat. The weirdness that drew the attention of authorities in 1993 stemmed from bad choices made by the suspects rather than clothing, haircuts, or staying up late rocking out to Megadeth. The West Memphis police, so often excoriated for misjudgments, missteps, or worse, did their duty in a diligent and imperfect manner. The investigation, despite mistakes and oversights common to complex criminal investigations, was professional and painstaking. Detectives took many statements, followed all sorts of strange and unpromising leads, and administered the polygraph dozens of times. Other than the confession, most of the evidence was circumstantial. Murderers had been convicted on less. Prosecutors and investigators, for example, were hard-pressed to come up with more than highly circumstantial evidence in most of the 30 or so murders credited to Ted Bundy. Let me... As an aside, the only thing they have that was considered direct evidence or truly direct evidence at the time was uh, uh, bite marks on uh, his last victim, a little girl from Lake City that he left in a hog killing pen. Uh, uh, Bite marks have since been largely discredited as a forensic method that's really that effective in identifying matching suspects and bite marks. Uh, So, while they would have new tools to work with today, the methodology that was used to to unequivocally convict, tie Ted Bundy into this one killing, because frankly, he didn't leave a whole lot of, there wasn't a whole lot of physical evidence left at, at the scenes of any of his killings. By the time the bodies were found, and many of them weren't found, They were often reduced to bone fragments or skulls on a hillside somewhere. Uh, The the West Memphis Three case is not quite that extreme, 
but these children were the bodies of uh, well there two of them were living at the time were placed in this filthy ditch and uh, Robin Hood Hills uh, and where they the bodies were there for 18 hours and there was uh, quite a bit of material floating in that water but there wasn't a whole lot of DNA collected from the scene uh, I don't know how much there would have been if they hadn't put them in the water but there was not much by the time the water and the elements got uh, did their work there wasn't much left at all uh, anyway to go on uh, I was talking about Ted Bundy uh, going to some other killers uh, despite multiple attackers blooding up two homes while killing seven people in the Tate La Bianca murders police in Los Angeles vastly greater resources than West Memphis were unable to come up with viable clues or significant suspects until long weeks later while missing potential breaks in the case. And indeed, Charles Manson's connections to the Tate murders were far more tenuous than Damien Eccles' role in the killing of Michael, Stevie, and Chris. All I can say is amen to that. All three of the teens from the t trailer parks were convicted. The convictions held up on appeal. The persistent claim that police, prosecutors, the juries, the juries and the judge we're all ignorant, incompetent, or even corrupt, says more about the lack of character of their critics than the good folks of Arkansas. I mean, there's no, you know, you can hear about, you can hear talk about, there will be references to the corruption of the police, etc. But when you ask for, for, my experience has been, you ask people for actual specifics about corruption of the police in regards to this particular case, they don't have anything. There was an investigation going on by the state police into, into some holdings that were in the evidence, some things that were missing from the evidence locker there. And there was some something to that. And it's a, it's a fairly generic problem at police departments, sadly enough. But sometimes evidence, if it's really worth something, goes missing. It's not a big surprise. It's not, it's not that unusual, but it had nothing to do with this case. Or almost nothing. Uh, there was one officer, uh, James, um, can't think of his name right now, who, who was involved in that other the other thing, but it didn't ha it, it didn't affect. I don't see any evidence that it, that that uh, that that case had any real any real influence on this case at all. Eventually, thanks to Hollywood celebrities and misleading documentaries that left out crucial evidence, the killers who became the West Memphis Three walked free. No exonerating evidence, despite many years of investigation and a defense fund and the millions of dollars has been produced. None of the three has offered a credible alibi. Most supporters, as proponents for the alleged innocence of the West Memphis Three are styled, remain ignorance of the fact. The, West, the mainstream media, not just various authors and filmmakers with their own agendas, but most of the true crime and interview television shows, as well as magazines and newspapers, have bought into the premise that, 
quote, those boys were innocent, unquote. Indeed, I, I, it seems like I see him referred to as wrong, wrongfully convicted more often than I do anything else. Uh, and it's always incorrect. Uh, some news accounts have even referred to the West Memphis Three as exonerated, despite their convictions and guilty pleas, and the, and the lack of exculpatory evidence that's been produced before and after their release. Uh, even well-meaning, more responsible journalists can get the facts right and still be so very wrong. Often underworked and under constant deadlines, the average reporter tends to opt for the easy narrative, one that won't raise a red flag with editors or readers. Consider, for instance, the familiar narrative of the three boys. The oft-told story of the three victims as best friends, all members of the same Cub Scout pack, was the narrative served up largely by the perspective of one voluble parent, Mark Byers. The truth was is that Chris Byers wasn't a member of that Cub Scout pack, and Michael and Chris weren't best friends. But as a journalist and the man who shot Liberty Balance sagely observed, when the legend becomes fact, print the legend. Other journalists have their own agendas, often tied into a commitment to social justice and its manifestations of anti-police bias anti-religion prejudice, and anti-Southerner bigotry. Progressive crusading goes far to explain the more egregious rep misrepresentations of the West Memphis case in movies, true crime TV, TV series, or, or books that gloss over or ignore much of the evidence. Such attitudes are not confined to this case. Witness such put-up jobs as the 2015 Netflix series Making a Murderer, which disregarded key evidence and common sense in a style reminiscent of the Paradise Lost movies. I witnessed the common uh, trope uh, used to a ridiculous extent by Joe Berlinger, but I've seen other other. Uh, true crime documentarians do this, which they seem to seem to think that you find a, a, a picture of a local cross someplace. And uh, Berlinger did this in his coverage of the uh, Jessica Chambers case, where he constantly focused on, there's, <laughs> it's, it is eye-catching. There's a huge cross uh, uh, on, uh, off I-55 with a, a huge metal gleaming cross off I-55 with a uh, crown of thorns uh, uh, in the middle of it, at the cross pieces. And uh, Berlinger, you know, showed that over and over and over again. In that case, it had not one thing to do with the case other than the fact that it's fairly close to where Jessica Chambers was, was murdered. And when I say fairly close, not that close, but, you know, in the same general, you know, same general, general areas and, you know, drive 15 miles that way and you, you get to the little town where she was, she was killed. So, you know, he was trying to establish something that, that, you know, this community conformed to his idea of what it was supposed to conform to, even though it actually didn't, you know. They made a big deal out of it. There was, he, there was constant promos about the race war. The mentioned race war. There was no race war there. There were there were some 
uh, some strongly divergent opinions, apparently, which he didn't accept, you know, he doesn't really explore that very, very far, but there apparently were some strongly divergent opinions uh, between black and white communities about who, about the guilt of uh, Quentin Tellis, the, the primary suspect, the guy who was on trial, the primary suspect. Uh, but uh, it didn't. Ex it wasn't explored in a very thoughtful or engaging sort of way, and it could have been, but it wasn't. Uh, you know, they even had this totally egregious um, conversation with a guy who's sort of bragging about being the top uh, drug dealer in the county and how much money he makes off selling drugs all the t all the time. And he talks about how you know he's having to live in this world of prejudice, and I'm thinking. You're a young black guy, you're on TV in the middle of Mississippi, and you're bragging about all the money you're making off drug dealing, and you feel safe in doing this. Uh, there must not be that much oppression going on. And honestly, it makes you wonder what actually is going on there. Uh, anyway. Anyway, this is a very, it's a very common thing. They, you know, if it's not the, the cross, it'll be something else. But the idea that, you know, they, they go visit someplace, uh, they find a trailer park or uh, a cross or uh, a little, little local cafe, and they turn that into some sort of emblem of the community. And often it's not. It's often an anomaly. But anyway, get back, get back to my prologue here. Uh, by putting the focus on mullet-headed rednecks, drawing overweight cops, and righteously angry Christians, the media have been able to play upon the most egregious stereotypes of Southern whites, while positioning a murdering sociopath as a hip kid who is just too damn cool for the uptown hometown, uptight hometown idiots. The West Memphis Three myth was made to order for the familiar narrative of the perceptive young outsider that every hipster and modern-day aspiring artist, and aren't we all as young aspiring artists, well, I'm not so young, but aspiring artists and, and visionaries, aren't we all that today? Anyway, a modern-day aspiring artist imagines himself to have been. Among the sensitive souls who found a doppelganger of their teenage selves and Eccles were those on the list of professional outsiders. Celebrities such as Johnny Depp and Henry Rollins. Some of the political commentary, particular from the progressive, some of the critical commentary, particularly from the secular progressive wing of the supporter network, has expressed amazement that witchcraft, black magic, and blood sacrifices can play any sort of role in the case of modern justice. Many Americans believe in the reality and power of demons. Various polls have found that well upward of half of all Americans believe in angels, demons, the influence of spirits, the devil, and miracles. Eccles himself believed not only in demons, but in the spiritual efficacy of blood sacrifice. Tied into the idea of the blood sacrifice were elements of sex magic. In Aleister Crowley's magical system, which Eccles claims to have embraced in his preteen years. Orgasm and ecstasy were equated with death and sacrifice, and the sexual fluids were often represented as blood or water. Crowley devoted a whole chapter of magic and theory and practice to the bloody sacrifice. 
While Eccles claimed not to have read Crowley at the time of the murders, he also claimed a deep knowledge of the black arts. Eccles described the invocation of spirits in his own writings. Back in 1993 and 1994, he felt he was in transition to a state of being a god, something other than human. He believed that drinking blood invested him with spiritual energy. Those were the deepest beliefs of a young witch, not imaginings of investigators and prosecutors. The 1994 trials in Arkansas were like those in Salem 300 years ago, in that they were all courtroom proceedings, and also that witchcraft figured into the cases. And that's about the extent, extent of an apt comparison. The why of the crime seemed incomprehensible because the horror of the act and the sick, sick motivations driving the killers were so foreign to the healthy mind. To the sick mind, the slaughter made perfect sense. As Eccles told police, it made the killer happy. Use his own words. Eccles and his blood brother Jason had formed a pathological dyad, dyad, D Y A D, for those who can't get past my pronunciation of it, cultivating elaborate violent fantasies via the ritual torture, killing, and eating of dogs, cats, and other animals. They educated themselves in the curriculum of occult murder. The lurking allure of a thrill kill finally became irresistible when the killing coincided with sunset, the rise of a full moon, and the pagan holiday of Beltane. In some respects, they actually got away with the crime. Eccles has profited nicely from the murders. Many books have been written about the case. There are, and then I go into this, there are still at least two stories largely untold worthy of a book treatment. One, how the killer's families, victims' families were devastated first by the loss of the boys and then by a series of betrayals and accusations that still dog them over 20 years later. Actually, over 25 now. And two, how a network fueled by the news media, Hollywood, musicians, occultists, and gullible HBO subscribers delivered upward of $10 million to West Memphis Three Advocates and how that money was spent. Terry Hobbs' book is going to remedy some of that situation. It's a very good look, and I, I, I did a review, and I actually quoted myself here, which I can do for you, but it's uh, about the, the need for, for such a book, and I'm, I'm glad to see uh, Hobbs do this. Uh, other parents don't want to, at this point, They're beyond beyond hope that they're going to get a sympathetic uh, reading, and I think, and uh, they just don't want to expose themselves any more than they've already been exposed to the kind of horrible feedback they get from uh, the supporter community. I don't blame them. Um, as far as the other as far as the other book. You know, I, I do think that uh, a, a great case could be made for the blatant propaganda that, that comes out uh, in the true crime uh, uh, genre, constantly feeding off uh, the idea that uh, criminals are blameless and uh, 
prosecutors and the police and the, and the courts are, are have this horrible system they've set up to railroad poor innocent people into long term long terms in prison. And I'm not without my criticisms of the judicial system. I've seen it at work and I, I know it makes mistakes and even the things it does routinely and correctly by its own lights are things about it that I think are uh, are problematic to say the least, maybe maybe even unfair. I think the biggest problem I see is 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 a small time is in the small time. And I saw this in municipal courts where the same people would show up all the time, uh, week after week. Uh, not the same exact people, but the same groups of people. And sure enough, fa different faces. The faces would become familiar after a while. And even the ones you didn't hadn't seen before, you quickly found out. Oh, well, they've been in here many times before. And what you would find out is they were in there because they kept doing these, kept driving without a license, or being you know trespassing, or couldn't stay off the levees or whatever. But you know the big thing was, was they just didn't follow through with things. They get a fine. They didn't pay the fine. They were supposed to go to court. They didn't show up in court. So they would have that against them in the court system and all that stuff built up to a point that they would have the the judge would lower the boom on them and they'd end up in jail. Or that, you know, or with a big fine that they had to come up with, and then they had to come up with the money and they had you know, they had a system where they would uh, you know, finance your uh uh your fines and so forth. In other words, you pay them a little bit of money and you can stay out of jail. And so a lot of them were in hock to the court system. Uh, I don't have an answer to this, but, you know, what you're doing is you're asking the same people who, you know, couldn't be bothered to turn in their homework in high school or, G or elementary school, for that matter, who basically just didn't do what they were told and had no interest in doing so and really had no motivation to do so. They didn't, they didn't seem to mind getting in trouble that much. And they don't mind going to jail that much. They don't like it. But, you know, okay, I'm back in jail again. Big deal. Um, you know, that's the same, same small segment of the population. And it creates huge problems. And it, I, I wish there were, I, I think there's an answer there. And I don't, think it, I don't think it is what's being done now. I just don't have the answer. I think there is an answer somewhere in all that. Uh, Send them, put them off on their own island. All the all the malcontents and dysfunctionals, and just put them on a dysfunctional island and let them live among themselves. They'd probably get along fine, except for you know constantly robbing and shooting and beating each other up. But except for that, they'd be they'd get along great. At least they would understand the world they're living in. I think in many cases they're living in a world they really don't understand because it runs by rules and they don't follow the rules. But enough of that. And then I talk about the book. I said, this is not a book for fans of lurid fiction. Stevie Branch, Michael Moore, Christopher Byers, and their families, friends, and other mourners are owed an honest accounting, whether in horrific fact or drawn-out detail. Baldwin and Eccles have been given an opportunity to respond to questions regarding the case, but gave no comment blocking contact via social media. 
contact with the reclusive Jesse Miskelly was blocked. Tried several different ways to get in touch with him and couldn't do it. Questions posed via social media to Matt Baldwin, Stacey Sanders Specht, Pamela Metcalf, also known as Pam Eccles or Pam Hutchison, Angela Gail Grinnell, Constance Eccles Mount, also known as Michelle Eccles, Garrett Schwarning, Kenneth Littlebit Watkins, Stephanie Dollar, Holly George Thorpe, Jennifer Bearding, who's a who is a practicing attorney in, in Arkansas now. She does handles domestic cases, and Johnny Douglas were not answered. The former Deanna Holcomb who still lives in Arkansas under another name, go, gave no answer to a Facebook query on, a, on an account that otherwise appears active. I also mailed her at what I'm pretty sure was her home ad address. I got no response there. Heather Dawn Clyatt, also known as Heather Dawn Hollis, threatened legal action to prevent her name from being used and otherwise refused to explain the many discrepancies in her stories. Dominique Ferris, uh, Dominique, also known as Dominique Tear, graciously and freely gave a phone interview. Susie Brewer, who was uh, Miss Kelly's old girlfriend, responded with a forthright, honest update on her troubled relationship with Miss Kelly. Uh, I have to say, I was really impressed with the honesty the, with Dominique and Susie Brewer, and at least they were at least forthright with me about what they wanted to say. I, I think Susie Brewer was as, was just as honest as she could be. Dominique, I think she was hedging what she had to say for all sorts of reasons, but I did appreciate that she called me back and she was willing to talk and she was not, it was not a, 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 a an adversarial type conversation. I just wanted to find out what she thought about things. And uh, I was glad to hear her give her side of the story. I appreciated it very much. Uh, much of the following was done from much of the following was drawn from the official records and the words of actual witnesses, friends, and neighbors of the killers and their victims. And then I talk about misspellings and uh, how I edited the story. And, and then I go on. Uh, at times, the investigation stepped into pathological quicksand with seemingly no bottom to the sickness. As Deputy Prosecuting Attorney John Fogelman told the court, we ran across some very strange people. I mean, very strange people. So, you know, this is not a tight, it's not a tidy by the numbers narrative typical of the true crime genre. I don't know if I'm that's even correct. That I, I, that's what I wrote. I'm not so sure the true crime genre is all that by the numbers, but anyway. Fogelman also once said that it would take a book of a thousand pages to tell the story of the case. Would even that be enough? These two volumes by no means exhaust the topic. If the case was not so controversial, the story could be told in a standard true crime format of some 300 pages or so. That would have been easier to write, would have been a quick, nice quick read, but would have left room for for supporters of the West Memphis Three to exploit every omission. Frankly, I did the last book as the condensed version without worrying about squeezing in air, 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 just everything, you know, throwing in the bathroom sink just so I can say, yeah, the bathroom sink's in there, which is what I was doing in the first two volumes. I think the, the, the book's more readable as a result. It's a, it tells it has a better flow and has more of a, is a better narrative without giving up anything of the essential facts or the basic story. Uh, the field of investigation was full of unreliable narrators, 
and how, with alternatively fascinating and frustrating, stra frustrating variations, changes, and outright contradictions in stories with plenty of dead-end questions and unsolved puzzles. Let me say that there's a lot of questions that are simply never going to be answered in this case. And, uh, and some of the answers are only, are only known to, say, three people, such as Miss Kelly at Baldwin and Eccles. And uh, I'm not sure that at this point any of them are capable of telling the truth, even if they were so motivated to do so. So we'll see. Despite the detours, the trails of evidence inexorably lead time and again back to the guilt of the West Memphis Three Killers. Oh, with that said, that's enough for me, and uh, that's it for uh, the case against. This time, I hope to get this up. I hope to get this and the two earlier episodes up on multiple platforms, and very soon in the near future, make this more available to to everyone. Uh, thank you for listening. Uh, I'll see. I'll talk to you again soon. Bye.